I'm Kyle. And I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. Uh, if you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and in essence, catch up on our cinema. So it is the month of February 2024, and uh, this month we're going to be doing a little something that we'd like to call uh, Frame of Reference Month. <laughs> Um, now, that's kind of an obscure title. I wouldn't expect anyone to really understand the meaning behind that, but essentially it's just a little bit of wordplay on the fact that uh, Kyle and I talk about movies every week, and uh, as a result, we reference movies constantly um, in in just kind of daily conversation. And uh, recently, we've had a handful of movies that have just come up, like references to them have been made very, very consistently over the past several weeks. Uh, so we decided to just bite the bullet and straight up review those movies that we've been referencing in our reviews for other movies. <laughs> so Kyle had the pick uh, to kick things off this month. So Kyle, how about you go ahead and uh, introduce uh, your first uh, frame of reference pick for this month? Yes, uh, this movie has come up a couple of times, I think because of smoking acting and Chris Christopherson has come up uh, this last month. Uh, but this one is payback. I didn't check the. I didn't even check the year or who directed it. Uh, but it stars Mel Gibson, and I think that's probably the most important component of uh, <laughs> of the movie uh, because this. I think this is the the essence of a Mel Gibson movie. This is everything that a Mel Gibson movie is supposed to have. Uh, I, I mean, obviously South Park have, you know, pointed it out before that he's like, you want to torture me? You, you want to torture me? You can torture me. But they missed <laughs> a couple of other key things about a Mel Gibson movie. Yes, he does get tortured in quite a bit of his films. Uh, but also, he does not want to have a spouse that's alive. Uh, a spouse is dead <laughs> in a lot of his movies, and this movie is no exception. Also... He has to be referenced and feared as being the most badass, craziest motherfucker that's ever lived. And again, this movie is not spared. He is that person in this. Uh, yeah, uh, everything Kyle just said is true. There are quite a lot of tropes that are quite evident across most of Mel Gibson's filmography. I'd actually be very curious to know when South Park unleash that beast onto the world uh the their ver their take of mel gibson because it is i hate to say it it is kind of spot the fuck on um so like whenever that came into existence whenever they started lampooning him on their show like that that trope of him really got crystallized but with with good reason yeah like like it, they speak the truth in their depiction of him. yeah, <laughs> yeah. but uh, this film uh this film was an odd duck because uh, as far as I understand, it did not make a lot of people happy. Mm -mm. Um, and a lot of it came down to the tone. The tone. Uh, it, it was a little dark, I think. I, I actually, like, I can appreciate... This was before Mel Gibson, like, went off the rails and had his falling out <laughs> in Hollywood. But I actually really like this concept for a movie. I like a good neo-noir, because that's what this is. But instead of following a detective that's, you know, a little rough around the edges detective that might get his hands a little dirty, but ultimately the good guy, literally the tagline for this film was get ready to root for the bad guy. This is the bad guy as the as our main, main character going against worse guys, I guess is the way to put it. He's a bad guy, but everybody else is worser than him. Um, but I like his narration. I love the filter on this uh, on the movie. I 
I'm probably alone in that. That's just me personally. It almost has like a black and white. I don't know. Is this a blue filter? I'm not sure what color this filter is. Uh, what they call it is um, a bleach bypass. Okay. Uh, so it's a treatment process that the, the film stock itself apparently is put through uh, when it's being processed. So after the film is being shot. Okay. But it has like a black and white feel to it. Um, I love the smoking acting in this movie. Uh, the... <laughs> I mean, this is. I think this is the best smoke lighting. Only Quentin Tarantino does it as well, but they the natural light smoke acting is just fantastic. He is. This is the hardest smoking person I've seen depicted on screen. He is hitting these ciggies hard. Yeah, uh, Kyle is a. He's a connoisseur of of smoking and drinking on film. Yeah. Like drunk acting and smoking acting are two things that Kyle very often keys in on in our discussions of films, and as a result, it's kind of rubbed off on me a little bit. I kind of take <laughs> notice. A, it. <laughs> I take special notice now when I notice people smoking on film, and yeah, it's pretty spectacular. Hill uh, here, uh, aided uh, in part by the cinematography and the lighting. I think this, I think another thing that I like about the film is I do like the score. It does have a very distinct score. Um, I think that adds to it. It pops up. I it's I think it's just a fun story. Uh, but I think you had some you you weren't crazy about this one, which I completely understand. But there's a production history with this. Yeah, uh, thanks for setting me up there, Kyle. Yeah. Uh, so just to touch on the music one second, though, um, it's done by a composer that's not familiar to me, but uh, their name is Chris Boardman. And funny enough, I've seen this movie exactly one time before. Um, and the music is actually what stuck with me the most, aside from a single line delivery by a, a certain someone later on in the film. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, folks. Uh, Trevor here. Uh, here to report the sad news that, um, well, it's not sad. It's unfortunate. Uh, I done fucked up. You're fired. Everybody's fucking fired. Uh, so essentially what happened is uh, Kyle and I recorded this episode, uh, Payback from 1999 uh, directed by brian helgeland and uh unbeknownst to me until it came time to save the project file apparently my audacity temp files were being saved uh, to my windows installation drive um, which is very small and serves exactly that purpose and very little else uh, and as a result uh, my hard drive uh, became overfilled and the project both the project file and my audio file uh, were corrupted, uh, irreparably so. How do you fuck that up? Uh, so I put into the timeline, into my audio editor just now, um, what little I was able to preserve, but unfortunately my end of the conversation is just gone, um, beyond like six minutes in. So uh, here I am uh, talking with myself, uh, to myself, uh, to basically finish out the review uh, so the deepest of apologies to kyle uh, if he's hearing this um hopefully he's listening back to this episode um because i i don't like the idea of somebody you know showing up to work and not having anything to show for it because his his audio file to his credit like on the technical side of things is fine uh, it's it's just it's not usable because we only have his end of the conversation and be kind of weird to only get half of it um, so I'm going to try to finish things out. Uh, this is probably going to be a, a hasty, not especially detailed uh, review, um, being as I'm kind of recording this at the 11th hour. And, you know, to be 
quite honest, I'm kind of pissed about it. Like, I'll be honest with you and, and just fess up to the fact that, like, yeah, I'm, I'm kicking myself over this. I, I hate when things like this happen, uh, especially when it's to the detriment of, you know, people that I work with and, and care about. Uh, so anyway, I think where we left off with the conversation was Kyle had uh, set me up uh, to talk a little bit about the production history of, uh, of this film, of Payback, uh, again, from 1999, uh, directed by Brian Helgeland. Uh, so I'll talk about the director in just a minute, uh, as well as, you know, all the other major players involved in it. But I think where we left off was I was talking about the, the score for the film, um, which is done by an individual who is not known to me by any means, but um, his name is Chris Boardman, and the reason why I want to draw attention to that fact is that, if I'm being honest, like I've I've seen this movie exactly twice now, uh, around the time it first came out, and most recently just a couple of days ago. Um, as soon as the movie started up, the thing that I found I recalled the most most clearly was was the sound of it was the look and the sound was the kind of almost like borderline monochromatic color palette of the movie it has a very steely quality to it a very stony like vibe to it but on top of that it has a distinct like throwback quality to it uh, it very much feels like a very intentional ode to 1960s or 1970s crime dramas where even the even the titling, like the style, like the style of animation they used to to display the fonts during the opening credits, and even the font choice, kind of has that, forgive the expression, stark quality to it. I I say that because um, this movie is actually based on a novel written by uh, an author going by a pseudonym uh, whose last name happens to be Stark. But I'll, I'll talk about that in just a second. But yeah, I I found that the score for the movie was something that really stood out to me. Um, and in fact, like, I really wish we were able to save this conversation because it was a pretty good one. Short, less than an hour long. But the thing that's important for me to emphasize, like, in lieu of Kyle not being here, is um, he really enjoys this movie. Uh, he saw he watched it a lot when he was young. It was like apparently a tape that was in the household growing up. Uh, he's seen it many times, and he really enjoys it every time. Uh, he he ran down the list of tropes of uh, Mel Gibsonisms that are very present in the movie, um, so I won't reiterate that. But over the course of our conversation, that was kind of uh, an important thing to note, was that he's coming at it from the perspective of a longtime fan of it, whereas I've seen it exactly twice, and if I'm being totally honest, it's never quite clicked for me. Um but yeah, a lot of the construction in the movie feels like it's it's distinctly throwback, like very much think like late 1960s, mid-1970s or something. And even the addition of cast members like James Coburn and Chris Christopherson, uh, who was apparently a late addition to the cast, um, speak to that. Um, now, just kind of like working my way through the background of the movie, um, as I said, Kyle had set me up to talk about the production history, so... Because I honestly don't have a whole lot to say about the movie, I guess I'll focus most of my attention there. Um, director slash writer Brian Helgeland, uh, as far as I understand, he is largely regarded as a writer in Hollywood, um, but a prominent one. 
Um, for instance, uh, he wrote uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, which, um, if you're not familiar, uh, is the uh, Rennie Harlan-directed uh, Nightmare movie, um, a.k.a. the one that made the most money at the time. I think before... Uh, I think Freddy vs. Jason may have eclipsed it, but at the time it was like the most bankable of Nightmare movies, so that was kind of a big deal. Not especially uh, tricky in terms of like writing assignments, but in terms of um, accolades, like like money brought in at the box office, that is that is a feather you can put in your cap. Um, he also was involved in, uh, I think that was a Wachowski joint, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, Assassins. He was involved in the writing of that. And that's the uh, Stallone and uh, Antonio Banderas movie. Uh, that is mostly remembered, I think, for um, the the meme of Antonio Banderas uh, doing the... He's, he's like looking at a computer screen. He leans back and he's just like, ooh. It's, it's a classic meme. Um, probably most important to note on Mr. Helgeland's filmography, though, is L.A. Confidential. Um, which I believe did get an Academy Award, perhaps for writing, um, among other things. It was a juggernaut in 1997, although that may have been the Titanic year as well, so maybe I'll take that back. Anyway, uh, he also has a previous credit working with Mel Gibson in the form of Conspiracy Theory. He worked on The Postman, which is not well remembered. Um, And then Payback was his directorial debut. Uh, So kind of a, a change of job title for Mr. Helgeland. As far as I understand, he's continued to work in Hollywood, but very much like the, the 90s was his his big boom period. I don't, I don't know how much of a presence he has these days. But um, I did mention that this movie, uh, and I didn't know this until this most recent viewing, um, is based on a series of novels. It's based on a specific novel, but it's based on a, the the central character that Mel Gibson is playing, uh, named Porter in the film, but apparently Parker um, in the books, uh, spans like 20 plus books. And um, the author is Donald E. Westlake, uh, who was writing this character of Parker under the pseudonym Richard Stark, uh, which apparently the the name of the pseudonym Stark um, is supposed to be indicative of the writing style that Westlake would use uh, under the Stark uh, umbrella um kind of interesting to read up on it as far as i understand um this was a funny case where the the works published under the pseudonym may have eclipsed the profile of of the actual person um so the the stark character that westlake would embody when he was writing those those kinds of like crime crime novels and such uh, are potentially more successful than the stuff he wrote under his own name Anyway, uh, the movie is based on, like, specifically based on a novel called The Hunter, um, and in fact has been adapted to film previously in the form of uh, a Lee Marvin headlined film uh, called Point Blank uh, from 1967. Um, so I, I guess the the throwback vibe may have some origins not only not only in the source text but also that previous adaptation. Additionally, there have been other movies uh, based around the Parker character, one of which is actually called Parker. Um, And I haven't seen that one, but Jason Statham plays the title character. Um, Literally, the only thing I've seen from that movie is a single action sequence wherein Jason Statham uh, has a scuffle with a personal favorite of mine, uh, Daniel Bernhardt. Uh, He's kind of like a 
ever-present entity at uh, 8711 slash 87 North uh, Productions these days. Um, it was really cool seeing him in 2013, you know, throw down with Jason Statham. It's a pretty good scrap, too. Um, one, of, uh, one of the more uh, interesting outliers in Jason Statham's filmography, because it, it's surprisingly, like, grounded and gritty, the style of choreography they use for the scene. You know, on top of that, Jason Statham, I don't think of as being a guy who typically, like, gets roughed up in his fight sequences. I often think of him, like, steamrolling people if not crowds of people in his fight sequences. But that's one where, like, he gets the shit kicked out of him. Like, he gets stabbed. He gets beat up in a fucking shower. Uh, it's it's only a couple minutes long, but uh, look it up. It's it's good work from both, both men. Um, anyway, yeah, that movie Parker is apparently based on the same character, even though, for some reason, they renamed him Porter in this film. Um so the uh, the tagline for the movie, I forget if Kyle mentioned this in the in the couple of minutes of uh, of this conversation that I was able to preserve, but the tagline for the movie was "Get ready to root for the bad guy." And as far as I understand, that served as kind of a a, a point of contention about um, in terms of like the audience reception to the film is that that was expressly how it was advertised. Uh, f- coming from 1999, I, I was like 12 years old. I, I do remember the ad campaign for this movie. Quite a lot of it centered around Lucy Liu saying hubba 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 uh, while sitting in an SUV surrounded by armed gunmen. Um, and of course, the, the classic James Coburn line, that's just mean, that's mean, man. Uh, one of the best lines in cinema history. I'll, I'll be I'll be honest, That that is just an amazing line delivery. Um, but yeah, I, I remember that being a kind of an issue with the film is that it is kind of a mean film. There are basically no good people in the film. And on top of that, the, the portrayal of, of the Porter character, Mel Gibson's character in the film, he is kind of rough around the en- edges. Um, I wasn't overly bothered by it, but um, I did say that this movie did have a interesting production history. Um, and I'll get into that now. Uh, apparently, this movie received a director's cut uh, several years after its theatrical release. Um, but moreover, um, the theatrical cut of the film was contentious. Apparently, uh, first-time director Brian Helgeland uh, clashed frequently with producers, one of whom happened to be Mel Gibson, who has a producer credit on the film, uh, such that apparently... There are conflicting stories about this, but apparently Helgeland was ousted from the director position uh, sometime late into production, um, and it's up for debate as to who actually completed the film. Um, many people have been assigned credit, but none have actually taken it, as far as I understand. So it's kind of a, a movie without a director for the most part, um, which doesn't bode well for its, you know bode well for the, the studio's confidence in it. If, if nobody wants to take credit for it, then that means there must be something wrong with it. Um, but yeah, apparently Helgeland was ousted from the project, um, and it resulted in, many years later, a director's cut being made, which, curiously enough, I, I haven't seen it myself. I only became aware of it partway into this most recent rewatch of the movie. Um I say curiously because um, I did mention that the the color palette of the theatrical cut is very it's very steely it's it's borderline monochromatic at times. Apparently, the the 
subject matter and tone of the director's cut is even darker than the theatrical cut, but the color palette uh, is more vibrant. So they went two separate routes simultaneously with with the director's cut. It's a curious combination of elements that I'm not entirely sure if I understand why that choice was made, at least on paper. I, again, haven't seen it. Um, But the director's cut is apparently like 10 minutes shorter, um, is more mean-spirited. And in fact, fact, there's like uh, two major plot elements that differ greatly between the two films, one of which being... Um, the Porter character's conflict with his ex-wife, uh, who in the film uh, ends up being, serves as the impetus for his whole uh, road to revenge that serves as the story, like the main narrative thrust of the whole film. Um, in the theatrical cut, uh, it's mostly the atmosphere is tense during their confrontation with each other. And, and in fact, he like he kicks a door open in her face, which is a pretty violent act. But for the most part, that scene in the theatrical cut consists of him just being harsh to her, like on a like an atmospheric, like like he's projecting a harsh aura and maybe saying a few nasty words to her. In the director's cut, apparently they get physical, like they have a, a scuff, which I, I seem to recall reading, or at least Kyle had told me during our discussion that uh, the actress uh, Deborah Kara Unger actually may have sustained some injuries on the set uh, acting out that sequence. So the director's cut is a lot more uh, visceral and intense, especially in that sequence. And a lot of the articles I was reading um, centered on that sequence, the construction and edit of that sequence um, being a huge point of contention uh, on the part of a lot of people involved in the production. Like just a lot of people felt it was unseemly and just unnecessary, which is why it's been excised from the theatrical cut. Um, Additionally, um, Chris Christopherson, uh, who, as I mentioned, was a late addition to the cast, apparently was like a last-minute addition to the cast. Uh, in the theatrical cut, uh, he is used sparingly um, quite quite well, though. Like, like he, it, his presence doesn't stick out like a sore thumb. And in fact, it's, it's Chris Christopherson, so the, the gravitas that he brings to that, that portrayal of the character, Bronson, by the way, um, just it works it just works to quote the the fallout guy if you if you get the reference to the the video game conference or whatever um but in the uh, director's cut apparently i don't even know if he's in the film any longer um largely his his scenes if not all of them are replaced by a woman's voice on the other end of a telephone um who i think is supposed to be the same character's wife or something uh so that was a major change between the two cuts um, anyway, I, I'm always fascinated by things like this, so I apologize if I droned on endlessly about something that you don't give a shit about, but I'm always intrigued uh, to learn of alternative cuts to films, especially ones that make substantial differences and contributions to the film, because uh, as a bit of a amateur editor myself, like I believe, I believe firmly in just how powerful editing can be uh, to the filmmaking process. Um, so it's always interesting for me to to see like alternative cuts of movies that I know very well. Um, anyway, uh, I'm as I said, I don't have a whole lot to say about this one. Uh, something that that came up during uh, our conversation was that Kyle was prodding me, uh, you know, fun in a fun way. Like it wasn't a heated 
like back and forth or anything but he was asking me like like what were some things that didn't that you found didn't work for you about the film and if i'm being honest it's kind of hard for me to put my finger on because on paper this movie has a very solid cast i love the look of it um that might be controversial but kyle and i actually both agree that we like kind of the washed out almost monochromatic look of it um i love the sound of it the soundtrack really worked for me um the opening five minutes of this movie are spectacular, if you ask me, um, just from a filmmaking, a characterization, acting, editing standpoint. Uh, they accomplish a whole lot inside of five minutes. Um, but after that, to me, it starts to lose a lot of momentum. It's not that it ever farts around. What what bothers me about it is that it lacks it lacks peaks and valleys. It's it to me. It feels kind of flat. And what I mean by that is, I uh, during our conversation, I made reference to Indiana Jones, um, and I'm a big fan of set pieces in films. I like when uh, a movie straps you in for a few minutes of just like you're gonna watch a thing happen, and you're gonna watch some characters deal with some shit for a few minutes. Just you're just going to strap yourself in for, for a ride for the next five minutes or so. The movie doesn't have a whole lot of that. It's very, and this might be the result of being the product of a director who this is their first time at bat uh, and their background is primarily in, in, in writing. Um, it is a very, it's weirdly, it's a weirdly dialogue focused movie while not, while being minimalist in the number of words spoken, if that makes sense. Uh, I know that was, borderline incomprehensible but in a lot of ways it feels like a writer's film um with while not being especially verbose i I guess is what i'm trying to say but um something that i mentioned uh when kyle was asking me like things that didn't quite work for me was um he kyle that is uh, had mentioned that uh, the character of porter and and often the this is often the case with a lot of mel gibson characters like he's like a half step ahead of of all of the people he's set up set against and on top of that like his his plans often often come together like flawlessly like he's very very seldom put in a compromised position until like the final act of the movie um which in and of itself is kind of a trope where like in, in like western films and such or even like samurai movies like like uh, yojimbo and such where like you have the character who's presented as very strong and very capable, but they have like one slip up and they end up getting captured or something or tortured in, in the case of this movie, because it is a Mel Gibson movie. Um, I, I guess what I found myself wanting was again, to, to call things back to Indiana Jones was to have that hiccup, to have that moment where as, as slick and as smooth and as strong and as capable as the Porter character is, just for funsies it would be kind of neat to see him slip on a banana peel and have to have to figure shit out on his toes because to me that was always the charm of of like a character like indiana jones was that it it wasn't that he was the strongest guy in the room he was was always framed as very strong and very 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 capable very intelligent but more often than not what like what would secure his path to victory in any given situation was just kind of winging it he just kind of he was quick on his toes like like a lot of times things wouldn't go quite right but he would keep improvising until he got until he won basically and 
case in point, a lot of uh, the fist fights that Indiana Jones has with the big ugly goon, oftentimes played by the same fellow whose name I can't recall at the moment, but um, a lot of times he would get into those fights with those guys and have to weasel his way to victory where he'd get his shots in so you feel good about it like like you feel you you feel the indie kind of got like a little bit of like a i don't know a minor victory there where he got his shots in or whatever but usually the killing blow in fact almost always the killing blow would come in the form of some environmental hazard or something that he would take advantage of and i guess i kind of wanted that with uh, porter uh, and the the example that i cited um, on the podcast with Kyle, uh, and it's kind of an obscure one, but I had—I guess I had Jason Statham on the mind. Uh, I haven't seen that Beekeeper movie, by the way, that's currently in theaters. Um, I did see Expendables Four or Expend Fourables, uh, if I forget how that's written. That might be the worst movie I saw in 2023, uh, from 2023, anyway. Expendables Four is—I uh, I call myself a fan of that franchise, and that one hurt. Like that one, that was rough. Um, I like a lot of the moving parts. I like a lot of the components involved in that movie, but yikes. Uh, anyway, um, I said I had Jason Statham on the mind. Um, the Mechanic, which funny enough is also a remake of a 1970s film starring Charles Bronson. It's, it's a dad movie, um, if, if you're not familiar. Anyway, the, the Jason Statham remake uh, and I meant to say this on the, the Punisher uh, 2004 uh, review that we did very recently. Um, there's a big goon uh, that, that is featured in the, uh, the Castle family like eradication sequence in the Punisher from 2004. There's a big fucking guy who <clears throat> he may as well be like he's probably bigger than Kane from the WWE but he he's like big to the point that like he he's like seven feet tall and six feet wide. He he looks like Kane ate the Undertaker or something. Anyway, he he does fuck all in the Punisher two thousand four. I think he gets stabbed in the back by Roy Scheider. So I mean, as far as claims to fame go, like as as just like a goon in a in a Hollywood production, being able to say you got stabbed by Chief Brody that's pretty fucking cool. Anyway, that big guy. Uh, there's a sequence in the mechanic which also uh, co-stars Ben Foster, another Punisher connection. Remember, I said I wanted to mention that on the Punisher episode, but I never found the right time. So you're getting it now. Deal with it. Um, There's a sequence in the Mechanic remake where Ben Foster is, if I remember right, he's like an assassin in training. Like he wants to... He, he wants to be like Jason Statham's understudy or something. Anyway, he goes off on his own and he tries to assassinate this seven foot tall dude that's six feet wide and little ben foster uh, tries to spin kick his way to victory um <laughs> much like he tried to do an alpha dog anyway he he has it like set up like it's going to be a clean kill like he's going to get the drop on this big guy he's going to execute him without like without any sort of problems he's just going to kill him quick and get out of there problem is the guy is twice his size and it just doesn't work out and it just erupts into this five minute melee that ends up destroying an entire house it's pretty spectacular but i guess that's kind of what i wanted with the porter character was to have that moment where it's like oh shit i thought i I thought i factored in everything but just like one moving part didn't go like something zigged when it should have zagged and 
and now we're shooting each other. Like, I was really hoping for something like that, but it's not that kind of movie. In fact, I, I think it's mislabeled sometimes as an action movie because it's absolutely not. It's a crime thriller uh, that occasionally has outbursts of violence. It, it has basically no action set pieces. Um, another example of what I, I referenced just now of like, something that should have been easy ending up being like messy and brutal is a another obscure one i guess uh ninja assassin um which stars rain uh, the the korean pop star from back in the day uh, if you if you're not familiar with his music look it up it's pretty fucking amazing um that's like a lot of his songs consist of that noise um anyway um rain there's a sequence very early in that movie if memory serves where there's he's like trying to kill a guy who's taken a leak and like get a public restroom or something and he like stabs the guy in the neck but he like doesn't hit the right artery or the guy puts pressure on the wound or something anyway some bullshit happens and the guy is again like six and a half feet tall uh, and instead of dying and bleeding out, he turns around and starts throwing rain through through uh, toilet stalls, and they end up destroying a fucking public restroom, and blood is everywhere. Uh, it's spectacular, because it, it it's that thing where it's like, oh, it should he should just poked him in the neck and been done. It's like, oh no, that 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 went really bad. <laughs> he still got the job done, and you still like, you, it's still a victory at the end of the day, but. It was a hard-earned one. Um, anyway, I, that's kind of what I was wanting in this movie. Was just it's a little messier. It's a little too tidy, if you ask me. At times, and and also I'm you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of action movies more so than I don't know the like a very dialogue-focused crime thriller. Like uh, that's just a bias on my part. Also, it, worth pointing out. Um, Lucy Liu is in the film, as I mentioned, but uh, she's Kyle and I were referring to, to her cohorts as the the vaguely Asian mafia because her her connection to the plot to me anyway, I don't know if I I didn't fall asleep, but maybe I just like wasn't paying as close attention as I should have. I was having a lot of trouble figuring out like how she was connected to the people she was connected to because I was like, I thought she was just a dominatrix that that like, roughed up the one guy for pay and was like kind of his girlfriend or something i didn't know she was involved in organized crime i just thought she was you know a call girl or something but she keeps showing up and and at one point she so she shows up with a bunch of like armed criminals uh who have uh, attempted to assault uh mel gibson earlier in the movie but they show up again uh and they shoot the fuck out of david pamer by the way i'll i'll get to him in just a second anyway I, we've Kyle and I referred to it as the vaguely Asian mafia because that, that's just kind of a running gag on the podcast is that you you see this a lot in Hollywood productions where it's like you just have a collective of Asian American actors just thrown together that's with no respect for you know whatever ethnic or cultural backgrounds they each individually have uh, nor do, nor do the filmmakers or writers make any sort of attempt attempt to assign them any sort of real identity it's like they could be chinese in the film they could be korean they could be japanese it's never really explained it's just a collective of actors who i can definitely point out there are some chinese guys in there there's definitely a japanese guy in there because that is jeff Yamada, and he has fought mel gibson before in fact 
I think the same fucking year uh, in the form of Lethal Weapon before, uh, 4. Um, but yeah, I got a kick out of that. I mentioned David Paymer, so I'm going to bounce into David Paymer. I know this is probably very hard to listen to. Uh, it's hard to, it's hard to do, uh, so hopefully it's a little easier to listen to. Um, David Paymer uh, is a, he is a wonderful weasel. He just, he just slips so easily into this role. He is just so slimy and conniving and he's... <sighs> This has to come from some form of lived experience or something, because he's just too good at it. He's a versatile actor, though. Like, he can play likable, um, but I always enjoy seeing him in things. Um, I got a kick out of seeing him in this because uh, I am a fan of Scott Adkins's filmography, the, the British martial artist slash actor. Um, he did a movie called Accident Man uh, a handful of years ago, like five years ago, maybe six or so. It's a good one. Uh, check it out if you're invested in his filmography at all. It is a good one. Um, what was interesting about seeing this movie now as a 30-something-year-old, as opposed to back in 99 when it first came out, is um, when it made me think of Accident Man, uh, part, like structurally, uh, in terms of the, the plot arrangement. I was like, huh. There's, there's some similarities going on here. Uh, it feel, to me, it felt like perhaps the folks involved in the production of Accident Man had seen Payback and maybe liked it or something. Uh, and what makes me think that is not only are there some structural similarities, um, what with there being like a, a vast, unnameable criminal syndicate, basically, uh, in, in this movie, in Payback, uh, they refer to it interchangeably as the syndicate, formerly the syndicate, uh, currently the outfit. Uh, so it's like the, a bunch of people that work under this, like, John Wickian kind of uh, high table type organization of sorts. Uh, and Accident Man, there's kind of a similar thing going on there. And on top of that, David Paymer is in both films as essentially the same character and he receives similar treatment uh he gets shot he gets uh the bonnie and clyde treatment in this film uh, he gets about 20 squibs in him that must have been a fun day of shooting for mr pamer uh and accident man uh he gets tortured while receiving a massage i think scott adkins uh, steps in for martin ford uh the absolutely gigantic uh british uh bodybuilder uh if memory serves um, he like steps in for him and he, he like, I think he like hits him in the foot with, with like a, a club or something. Like he like takes a bat to his feet or something. It's pretty cool. Anyway, David Pamer's in this, uh, to be David Pamer essentially. Uh, as far as our other cast members go, I may as well just run down the list here. Kyle and I had a lot of really good things to say about Greg Henry, uh, who plays Val in this film, who with his skunk hairdo, um, he may, he's the most visceral uh, of the villains in the film. He's, he's kind of the most personal villain to the character of Porter such that it's, it's a little unfortunate that um, structurally he's like excused from the film a little early. Uh, it's, it's like one of those unfortunate situations where it's like, Oh man, he was the first bad guy, but he was also the best. Like maybe we should have kept him around longer, but the whole plot progression is based around uh, climbing the ladder, essentially. Mel Gibson character of Porter. Um, I don't know if we gave a plot rundown, but basically it's a a heist gone bad. He gets betrayed. Porter, that is. Uh, he gets shot in the back by his wife. Uh, the character of Val is involved. He's like instrumental in bringing, like, 
causing Mel's wife to betray him. Um, and it's all over uh, a sum of $70,000, which it's a running gag throughout the film that everybody that Porter comes across is under the assumption that he's he's after all of the money that was stolen that day by all three parties involved. That would be Porter, his wife, and the character of Val. Um, when in actuality, the character of Porter uh, has some sort of like criminal code of ethics, um, which causes him to only be seeking what he feels is owed to him. That would be the $70,000 which Val stole from him, his, his cut, basically, just his cut. Uh, Val took it from him after attempting to kill him uh, and then paid it to the syndicate at the time um, to absolve some form of debt. Um, and as a result, the the money now belongs to, to the syndicate, which is what causes Porter to come into conflict with them after he ultimately dispatches Val at about the halfway mark of the film. So it's basically a very simple story of just like working your way up the chain. They even draw attention to it in dialogue in the form of him saying like, there's, if I keep working my way up, it's like, it's, there's always going to be a guy who, who sits at the top of the pyramid. Um, so basically the, the structure of the movie is him scheming to get to Val initially. Um, but ultimately it's not so much vengeance. It's, it's getting what is getting what is owed. Um, so Val being killed is just a a step in the process to, to going further and further up the ladder until somebody is willing to give him that $70,000. And it's almost a kind of a running gag that for that much money to to something as large as the organization that he's he's coming into conflict with, it should be as simple as just cutting him a check and telling him to be on his way. But for some reason, they just don't. And as a result, they just keep coming into conflict with each other, and it keeps escalating until, spoiler alert, he basically destroys the organization. <laughs> um, which, on paper, again, I, I said this earlier, is great. I like a lot of things about that. On paper, this movie sounds fantastic to me. Um, it's just the devil is in the details. There's just some intangible something or other in the way that's put together that just doesn't, just doesn't quite click for me. Um, anyway, uh, as I said, Kyle and I both had a lot of good things to say about Greg Henry. Uh, he's a highly versatile actor, not just in this film, but across his whole filmography. Um, funny enough, the, the first time I took notice of him was uh, Slither, uh, the James Gunn film Slither. Uh, he is hilarious in that. Uh, he is he is a wimpy, cowardly bastard in that movie, and he, he is hilarious in that movie. That movie is tough for me because there's some images in that movie that really get under my skin and bother me. Like, not not like scare, but just make me feel icky. Um, but I saw it in the theater with my friend, and it it was really good. Like, I, I remember a lot of it really clearly, and I kind of want to rewatch it. But I keep getting scared away from it because I'm like, I don't want to look at that again. <laughs> uh, the tough, it's a tough thing because I do think it's a very good movie. Uh, very, very funny at times. Um, Maria Bello is in here as Rosie. Uh, she and uh, Mel Gibson's character kind of have like a romance throughout the movie. She becomes, uh, an, she becomes like an accessory to his, his revenge effort. Um, there's kind of a thing in this movie, even in the theatrical cut, that is hard to, it's hard to get by, in fact, like, um, 
the way the female characters in the movie are treated is not especially good. Like even she, who is kind of has like a romantic thing going on with, with Mel Gibson's character, there's a distance between the two of them because uh, the character Val, at, uh, who I keep calling the character of Val for some reason, um, when he is ultimately dispatched, he, he like threatens to assault her like just seconds before he's dispatched. Um, and it's it the way that that whole sequence plays out, it kind of feels like Mel Gibson, his character anyway, a Porter could have it could have planned that a little better like could have been a little tighter because uh yeah she gets the shit kicked out of her and on top of that lucy Liu uh, gets straight up like closed fisted just slugged in the fucking face where it's like she is a dominatrix and she does she and she and val they kind of have a thing where they are kind of rough with each other and you can tell that on some level they both it's an arrangement they both enjoy it but this is different like like she is just punch this is not a playful hit this dude this goon this he just slugs her he he lays her out like she is put to sleep and it's it's rough (laughs) like i'm not saying it would like ruin the movie for me or anything like that it's just it's one of those things that you don't often see where it's like damn that whoa you just caved that lady's face in Uh, he didn't cave her face in but he did knock her the fuck out um and again that's just an odd thing to see. Uh, it's a little bit uncomfortable, honestly. Um, but yeah, the, uh, pretty much across the board, the female characters in the movie are not treated especially well. That also may have been a point of contention uh, on the part of like, the producers and, and audiences. I do know that the movie made money, but critically, I do know it ha- it's slightly divisive. And s- small things like that that might play a part in that. Um, because... Uh, Mel Gibson's character's wife, um, played by Deborah Kerr Unger, who, by the way, has been on Catching Up on Cinema previously in the form of Silent Hill. Uh, she plays the old woman uh, in that one who is looking for her lost daughter uh, throughout the whole film. Um, she has She's just a really sad character in this movie, very, very ugly, tragic character. Um, and I think I'm... I don't... I don't have any like immediate plans to watch the director's cut, but like everything I've heard about it suggests that's like the way she's the way she is handled in that one is not especially good. Like it just it just sounds ugly for the sake of being ugly where it like doesn't sound like a worthwhile contribution to the film. It just sounds mean, man. That just sounds mean. Um Bill Duke is in here as a corrupt cop. I do like uh the kind of recurrences of he and his partner who uh, Kyle and I described as looking like uh, Joe Piscopo combined with someone else who is a lot bigger I can't remember who Kyle suggested he looks like anyway the two of them are corrupt cops who their scheme uh, is to kind of just watch Mel Gibson uh, go about his scheme to get his money so they can ultimately just lift it off of him so they're they're kind of enabling him they're allowing him to to carry on so that they can reap the benefits from his hard work. Um, Kyle did point out uh, quite correctly that uh, the way that uh, their subplot is handled is actually legitimately kind of clever and very satisfying. Basically it involves um, him getting their fingerprints on a weapon and uh, placing placing it at a uh, crime scene um, which ultimately gets uh, internal affairs from from their own police department uh, up their ass, and uh, 
yeah, they're they're kind of like quietly excused from the plot. And it's it's kind of neat to see that like the character Porter is capable not only of walking into a room and slugging a dude, but also you know cleverly working his way around them, like like removing an obstacle in a nonviolent manner. It, it, it was kind of neat. Uh, I I like the way that that played out. I gave Kyle full credit for that. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that uh, John Glover is in this film. Uh, he plays uh, kind of a an assistant uh, to a major villain in the film who's played by Willem Devane, uh, who is kind of like the, the first first guy up the ladder, like the next rung up from Val. Uh, he's, he's a character who's seen in the same room with Val, who Val is subservient to. So just on a visual level, you're informed, you, the viewer, are informed that, like, oh, if he's answering to him, then, then if he's kowtowing to him, then he must be he must be a hotshot or something. Anyway, John Glover, Kyle and I both really love him. Uh, you may remember him as Mr. Clamp uh, from Gremlins 2. Kyle, though, probably best remembers him, uh, most fondly anyway, um, in Batman and Robin, uh, the Joel Schumacher directed Batman and Robin, where he plays the scientist who ultimately uh, gives birth to uh, Uma Thurman's poison ivy. Uh, well, I, I guess you'll have to die, <laughs> I think is the line. I probably misquoted that, but his delivery of it is uh, spectacular. We both love John Glover. And it's amazing how much mileage he gets out of just his facial expressions in this movie, because... Kyle and I both love him, so just seeing him is enough. Um, he has very little dialogue in this, but the, he has a lot of like cutaway, just like reaction shots to to things that are happening around him, and just his eyebrows and his face. It, it tells a whole ass story. Uh, it's it's just kind of cool seeing him. Um, kind of parallel to the William Devane character of Carter, who again I said is the the man, the next rung up from Val. Uh, we have James Coburn, who, of course, that's just mean, man. Uh, he plays Fairfax, uh, who is supposed to be like on the same tier as Carter, um, although he arrives in the plot just after. Um, and then above him, uh, we have the aforementioned Chris Christopherson, who is supposed to be the top dog. Um, and again, uh, the story goes, Chris Christopherson is brought in at the 11th hour, um, but if I'm being honest, uh, the way he's integrated into the plot and into the edit of the theatrical cut of the film is not half bad. Like it, it, it doesn't feel out of place. Um, and the the torture sequence that happens, uh, Kyle and I both mentioned this. I, I feel like I need to speak on Kyle's behalf here. Um, the torture sequence where Christopher Stofferson is facing down uh, Mel Gibson uh, as he is having his toes uh, bludgeoned with a hammer um, is well acted. Uh, Chris Christopherson has a certain gravitas to his performance. Just his, I mentioned this, the, just the construction of his face, the lines, the, the, the wrinkles of his face and stuff project a lot, of, project an aura, project a lot of character. Uh, and some of the things that he says to Mel during the sequence just feel just a little bit more real coming out of him as opposed to just, you know, some nobody actor or something. Um, so yeah, I, I appreciate having him here. And I think it speaks a lot to the, uh, I guess the, the prestige associated with him and his career and his accomplishments that 
he would be the actor among all the people who are in the producer's Rolodex or the casting director's Rolodex or whatever to get somebody that would serve as, you know, the the head of an organization like something represented in this film. For him to be thought of and selected for that role tells you quite a lot about how in the high regard that they hold him in the the whole production because um, remember he's James Coburn the you know no longer living but at the time kind of legendary James Coburn is subservient to him so it just tells you like the tier that he's at um I should also mention that Freddy Rodriguez uh plays a drug dealer in the film I, I did not recognize him Kyle had to point it out to me um he's playing a guy who Again, call back to previous episode. Um, the Punisher 2004 featured Ben Foster wearing a lot of uh, facial piercings and whatnot, all of which get torn out by Will Patton in that film in a torture sequence. In this film, Payback uh, from 1999, Freddie Rodriguez plays a drug dealer who has a lot of facial piercings. Well, uh, I think it's just his nose ring uh, gets ripped out by Mel Gibson pretty nice little sequence i I appreciate that kyle and i had a had a laugh over um just the the watching mel gibson relish punishing this fella because remember this character is supposed to be like a heroin dealer who had a hand essentially in the death of mel gibson's wife who being as she shot him in the back um probably has missed he probably has mixed feelings about her (laughs) um but he probably didn't want her to die he certainly didn't attempt to kill her when he came to see her at the beginning of the movie um but she does die i think of an overdose uh, around the time the scene is happening so he, he probably has some ish he probably has some emotions that he needs to get out towards this guy and he does beat the fuck out of freddy rodriguez and both kyle and i had a good laugh over just there's a certain posture he assumes when he's punching freddy uh, in the kidneys no less um that you can tell he's kind of like he's enjoying it like he's just like mm, yeah that that was a good one like i really i really got through to the organs on that one that wasn't no meat punch that wasn't no bone punch that was a that was a gut punch that was a kidney punch he's gonna be pissing blood like there's just like a little bit of like a, a shoulder swagger and like just a little bounce in his toes that just i don't know it's one of those acting things that you notice or you don't i noticed it i appreciate it anyway I don't think I have much more I can say about this movie without Kyle, unfortunately. Um, I, I hope I was able to salvage this. I, I'm deeply upset um, by by the fact that, you know, it was my botch that resulted in uh, not only me having to redo this, but having to, you know, toss out some perfectly good material that my, my friend Kyle uh, recorded as a favor to me, you know, doing the show and whatnot. Uh, but hopefully you got something out of listening to me ramble incoherently about this one. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, this was Payback uh, from 1999, um, directed by Brian Helgeland, although I guess that's up for debate, being as he was apparently removed from the production at some point. Um, Kyle loves it. He's seen it many times. He enjoys it quite a lot. I think he said he doesn't have plans to rewatch it anytime soon, but... Um, to me, it's 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 like there's just a little something missing on paper. As I've, as I've probably said three times by now, there's so much for me to like about this movie, and I like so many members of the cast. As as I've said during this solo recording just now, it's just there's there's just something about the way it's put together that it just feels. 
I don't know if tepid is the right word, but it just feels like it needs some more some more juice, some more peaks and valleys to it. Just just the accelerator needs to be mashed down a time or two in the movie for me to really engage with it on the level that it wants me to. But anyway, um if you'd like to catch up on any of our other Catching Up on Cinema content, uh, you can do so by navigating to our website of catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, you can also find us on the social medias in the form of the Twitter slash X at Catching Cinema, as well as the Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema. Uh, so feel free to hit me up at either of those. Uh, and the podcast is available on pretty much every platform you can imagine, including Bitcade. Uh, so fucking Google it. And uh, that being said, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I promise Kyle will be on the next episode, or at least uh, someone else will be involved in the next episode. Uh, and we will catch you next time. I'm a fucking idiot. I'm a fucking idiot. I'm a fucking idiot. I'm a fucking idiot! I'm a fucking idiot!